piddle piddle, hey piddle piddle piddle, hey piddle piddle, yo ho ho, ho ho, Christmas two fifty podcast, hey piddle piddle piddle, yo. Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? Hi, Darren. I'm very good. How are you? I'm good. Um, Listeners may detect that we possibly might have some sort of Zoom issues. There may be some problems in terms of connection. We apologize for that. But it should be okay, because it's the day after Christmas. Merry Christmas, Andrew, and Merry Christmas to our very special guest, the wonderful Niall Murphy, editor of Scanon, and business, uh, is it business operations chief at Treasure Entertainment? Uh, head of business affairs. Head of business affairs at Treasure Entertainment. Niall Murphy, how are you, Niall? I'm very well, and very Merry Christmas to you too. Yes! So, you know, Christmas comes every year, and last week, with a bit of luck, we were lucky enough to have the wonderful uh, Joey Kyo and the fantastic Dr. Bernice Murphy to talk to us about Black Christmas, a suitably Christmassy movie. This week, we're talking about Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. And I guess before we start, the big question. Would you consider Citizen Kane to be a Christmas movie, Niall? Well, yes, I do. It's got snow in it. Therefore, <laughs> it's a Christmas film. <laughs> and a snow globe. Um, yeah. and, a, and not to spoil anything, but it also has a sled. It's like Snowpiercer. <laughs> it's the, it's the like, ultimate Christmas movie. It's just a movie like where they're in a train and surrounded by snow. And therefore, it is very Christmassy. Very like that Tom Hanks movie, The Polar Express as well. The Polar Express and Snowpiercer, the two great Christmas movies. No, that's, um, a, that's a Halloween movie. Yeah, I'm yes, sorry. Polar terrible. Express is a horror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but yes, so we're, we're talking about Citizen Kane. And one of the reasons why we're talking about it is because it is just Christmas adjacent. Also because Mank is now available on Netflix and you can watch it then. And because we've been meaning to talk about it for some time. And we asked Niall on to talk about it because I think this might possibly be one of your favourite movies of all time. Is that correct, Niall? Yes, it is. Yeah, I only have four books about Arson Wells. I don't. Uh, I'm not obsessed with the man or anything. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know what they say: "All's wells that ends wells," eh? <laughs> Yes, we can look forward to lots of those. It's Christmas. I'm allowed my treats as well. So, do you remember Niall the first time that you saw Citizen Kane? Um, and like the impression or the reaction that you had to it. I would have been oh, 12 or 13. It was on BBC Two, I think. Uh, one of those Sunday afternoon things that the BBC Two used to, or BBC One and Two used to put on classic films on uh, on around Christmas as well, which was, was great. Um, I used to get the tapes, put them on long play, record them all at like 11 o'clock at night, 12 o'clock at night when they were on, then watch them during the day and the following day, which you just, you just don't get that anymore. Um but yeah, it was it was formative seeing it. It was one of those movies that stuck with me, much like um, Oliver Stone's JFK did, which is the film I revisited a lot as a teenager and has pretty much is the reason I work in film. Um, but yeah, Citizen Kane would be one of the others that has that effect or had that effect. I'm trying to ask, was it the first Orson Welles film that you saw? Because you mentioned you have the four biographies of Welles, so you're obviously a big Welles fan. There's a yeah. there's a lot, you know, you like going back to the well, as it were, in, in those terms. <laughs> um, but, like, was Citizen Kane your first taste of Orson Welles, and kind of was it the one that hooked you? Yes, no, 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 it absolutely was. And it was also the, it was then finding out after that he was, you know, 23 making it, and that he was, that, that this was possible, that the greatest film of all time, as it was at that time in Sight and Sounds poll was made by a very very young man as his debut feature 
Yeah, it, it's worth kind of talking about that, actually, just very, very briefly. And I'm kind of nervous about this because I know you know far more about this than I do. But as far as I'm aware, like Wells's kind of origin, you know, he began, I think he toured around Ireland as a painter. And then, according to F is Fake, went into the theatre and convinced him that he was a great American actor and they put him on stage. And then he fell in love with acting and then he got involved with the Mercury Theatre Troupe. And he did a bunch of stage performances, particularly, say, stage performances of Shakespeare that were very popular and grabbed a lot of attention. And then obviously the War of the Worlds broadcast on radio. And again, a lot of apocrypha around that, but it's basically this big mythic thing that exists. And apparently off the back of that, the studios who had been trying to get him to go to Hollywood for so long basically gave him carte blanche. They gave him an unheard of contract with complete creative freedom. And I believe at that time, final cut on the film that he would make. And as far as I recall, Wells' initial reaction was he was just going to go to Hollywood to take the money and invest it back in the theatre troupe. But as soon as he went, he almost fell in love with the, with the medium and with cinema as an idea. Is, it, is that kind of fair no, to say? No, that, that... no you're, you're, you're dead on. Yeah, he was, he was, by the time he made, by the time he made Citizen Kenny, he was 25, but he was 23 when he was in the theatre and uh, was really making it in New York and got the cover of Time magazine and was, you know, the wunderkind, the rising star of, of that of that era. And then, yeah, the RKO or the broadcast of War of the Worlds, the essentially the world's very first mockumentary was uh, was what drew massive attention to him. And then the RKO who were in the doldrums, they were they were in serious financial trouble, just said bet the house on the kid and uh, and gave him unlimited creative control we're cutting salaries elsewhere and so he became a very uh, polarizing figure within Hollywood as a result yeah the kind of wonder coming in getting all this freedom that nobody else in the town had despite obviously growing up with the medium and I mean there's there's some wonderful kind of like really kind of biting comments from directors like D.W. Griffith who's like I loved my shots in my movies and I also loved them when Orson Welles did them. Um, but there's like the, apparently Welles learned how to direct by watching Stagecoach every night for a month. He apparently, when he showed up, he had oh, no didn't, idea. Didn't he say that, that he, he was on, um, he said he, he, he learned from Greg Toland, but it took about a day and a half. <laughs> to learn kind of all there was um, to learn about movies. And it's yeah. it, it, like with most professions, um, the people who do it for a living try to make it seem more cop- like like that they're... He, he, he was very sort of like dismissive of the... Uh, he was like, oh, it was very easy. <laughs> it's like, but how did you do all these groundbreaking things? It's like, oh, I... I I, 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 of course, I, I got the best um, kind of um, cinematographer people and Greg Tolan who did it already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what what they were doing wasn't very complicated. They taught me fairly quickly. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's it, it's a it's a because nobody had told because he didn't know how to do it. There was absolutely no barrier to what he wanted to do. So he essentially just tried to do it and then did it. <laughs> no yeah. one told him what he couldn't do. So he just did it anyway. 
Yeah, there's a lot of great stories like that. I think like when they're working on the X-Files, uh, Chris Carter and Frank Spotnett said that like one of the ways that they were able to do what they did on television in the 90s was because they'd never made a TV show before and so had no idea what was possible on a budget. And Wells, I think like, the, you know, you mentioned Greg Toland there, the cinematographer. It's worth singling out Miriam Geiger as well, who apparently put together a little booklet that explained like various shots, like wide angles, uh, close ups and things like that, like a little visual dictionary so that he could name the shot that he wanted to use, which is again remarkable but yeah so for a director with no experience coming in and doing it this being your first film so you know i mean it is quite intimidating what did what did you do by the age of 23 nile you know uh not a lot it's going on one we're um the rest of us are just arsing around i oh um all right then so before like we jump into the there. I did. I really, really appreciate it. Um, you, you, you know that with that the, every time he was asked a story, he changed it though, the, about about the making of it or about watching Stagecoach every night for a month. Or uh, when he was asked about who was his favorite uh, director or who was his influence, he said, "I studied the great American masters: John Ford, John Ford, and John Ford." Uh, so you know, it's just it changes because he was a storyteller. So he, you, how much of what he says you could believe is a very. Uh, very fluid thing yeah uh, very much in keeping with the movie itself arguably and that like you almost have like the making of citizen kane becomes like citizen kane itself where you're going around gathering all these statements and sort of observations that people have about how it happened when it happened and trying to put it all together and having these competing accounts and again we won't talk too much about mank because that's its own separate bundle of issues but things like say the argument over who wrote what in terms of citizen kane and the kind of the the push and pull that went back and forth in terms of giving credit to to various people involved again it, it's all quite remarkable in passing that it has this kind of level of density to it um and i think that it, okay let, let's let's ask the three questions then jump into the spoiler zone so to start us off nile mm -hmm. do you think that citizen kane is one of the 250 best movies ever made yes <laughs> let's go bolder than that do you think it is the best movie ever made yes i do i believe it's the best film ever made yeah yeah because again, this is this is one of the things about it. And it's interesting, we'll probably talk about the release of it a bit later, but on release, the crit and we'll talk about like the, the actual release and distribution of it and the way in which kind of maybe there was campaigns against it and all the stuff involving Hearst, but on initial premiere, like the reaction to Susan Kane was basically equivalent to an earthquake. I think that Bosley Crowther at the New York Times described it as one of the great, if not the greatest, motion pictures of all time. And like you had the poster for it, which literally just announced it's terrific. That was the poster for Citizen Kane. It was a picture of Orson Welles and the words it's terrific on it. You had this kind of sense with critics watching it that the medium was being literally reinvented at that time. And it's kind of amazing how it's managed to hold hold on to that, largely speaking. I mean, famously, it was dislodged by Vertigo in the kind of critics poll in Sight and Sound in 2012. But it was a steady feature, a steady like number one best film ever, according to Sight and Sound, between 1962 and 2002. Yes, now two. So <laughs> <laughs> taking quite the plunge again. This is what I find kind of interesting because we talk about like the 250 and the 250's very, very odd sensibility where Citizen Kane, I think the highest rank Citizen Kane's been on the 250 is at number three. And that was back, I think, around about 2001. And since then, it's actually fallen significantly. It's now, I think, around 97. 
that's kind of it's it's interesting like do, is there this is one of the things that when i was reading about it um and i'm kind of curious to get your opinion on it Niall, as like a huge fan of it as somebody who, who loves it as much as you do is citizen kane one of those movies that is perhaps more beloved by and, and ebert used this term by the movie elite by people who make movies by people who write about movies by people who are in the movie industry than it is about say than it is by say movie viewers or kind of casual audiences or something like that is it is this a film fans film or or is it just a great film i mean it's, it's obviously both but it's a film fans film it's a film lovers film it's a film cre- creatives and film critics film because of everything that it did and because of everything it stands for and because of the type of film it is because it encapsulates a period of history it appeals to the critical faculties it appeals to the hollywood people who like to think of themselves in a certain light which you see time and time again at the oscars uh it is a it is very much a, a film for filmmakers because it, so much of what's in it is still inspiring people now like so much so much of so many of the shots that are in it were done for the very first time or were shown to a wide audience for the very first time through citizen kane so and uh, some of the, the, te- the techniques that had been used may have it may not have originated in citizen kane but they were popularized by it and as a result it became the one that people go to 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 look at it has the same influence in that respect that lawrence of arabia has or that um more recently that's something like seven or zodiac have in fincher's own canon you know it's it is a film for film fanatics and i mean proper full-on fanatics it's why you see the the uh the imdb crowd defend the hell out of it against mank you know it's it's <laughs> because the fanatics adore it you know and like and one of our, this nation's greatest fanatics mark cousins is a massive massive fan you know he's a massive wellsian because and i think he described happens. watching manx as screaming at the television at points um well we should talk about this very very briefly because again when i heard that mank was coming which is a black and white recreation of 1930s and 90s 40s hollywood from you know the indb's relatively popular director david fincher looking at the making of like the greatest film of all time citizen kane I was like, this is a shoe in to appear on the list. In fact, my bet was that it was going to appear higher than Citizen Kane for probably about a week. And it's kind of interesting just watching the reaction against that kind of like come so quickly um, in that it seems to, as you pointed out, a lot of people defending Citizen Kane against Mank. Because again, and we'll maybe talk about this in the spore zone in terms is, of authorship. Oh, sorry. Is it interesting or is it really boring? That's a fair point. So like the point. the the idea of all of these like people really upset about this. Sorry. But then Andrew, what about yourself? Do you think that Citizen Kane is one of the 250 greatest films ever made? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and uh, yeah, I'd, I'd I'd say it would certainly have um great argument to be to we lost you Andrew there I think Andrew or at least I did all right we'll, we'll come back to that 
Um, and, and for myself, um, I would say, yes, absolutely, definitely. Um, in terms of like visual innovation, in terms of style, in terms of just sheer watchability, absolutely. Like it is the cornerstone of so much of modern filmmaking. And it's interesting what Niall said about it being like a film fans film and coming back to it and seeing many of these techniques. I think one of the, one of my favorite articles kind of doing research for this was finding a piece from Roger Ebert in 2004. And Ebert, like this is one of Ebert's favorite films. He recorded the laser disc commentary for it he recorded the dvd commentary for it he teaches it on a regular basis and he was saying that like one of his he taught it on a regular basis he taught it on a regular basis and actually this is the this this is the not, article not he teaches like, it oh good point fair point um yeah, rest you know, he's in still peace, with us spiritually yeah rest <laughs> in peace i mean you can still read the articles but yes he taught it on a regular basis and he noted that like in 2004 he was at a screening of it and somebody pointed out to him, did you notice how they do, there's a shot early on where the camera moves back from watching a child playing outside in the snow into the house to a conversation at a table. And in order to move the camera through that space, the camera would have had to have been on an object or on a wheel or on something heavy so the table couldn't have been under it. And he was like, hey, did somebody pointed out how they did that, where they obviously just moved the table in under the shot and you can see the hat shaking on the table and you can see the chair mysteriously move in as a hand that's out of frame pushes it in and he was like i have watched this movie you know over 40 or 50 years and it was only when somebody pointed that out to me that i noticed it that you're still noticing these little kind of magic tricks in there there's so much to discover so yeah absolutely i think that it is one of the 250 uh, greatest films ever made and niall what about yourself does it belong on your own personal 250 so would it be among your own personal 250 favorite movies yeah it's in my top 10 do you have a ranking actually? Do, so where would it be? Would it be near the top, near the bottom? Would it be one? Would it be five? It, it it's two. <laughs> oh, what what beats it? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Fair point. That that's a, <laughs> that's a very very fair point. All right then. And Andrew, what about yourself? Would it be on your own personal two fifty? Andrew, listeners, we seem to be having some connectivity issues with Andrew. I will try and fix this in post. Um, if not, I'm just letting you know as listeners that this is happening. I apologize. For myself, um, probably not, actually, um, to be honest. This is one of the things where I admire and respect. I like Citizen Kane a lot, but I admire and respect it a great deal more. I think it is one of the best movies ever made just in terms of technical craft, in terms of its influence, in terms of its legacy, in terms of what it does. But if I were picking, it probably wouldn't even be my favorite Wells. I think I might prefer Touch of Evil to it. I think I might prefer F for Fake to it. I think I might even prefer The Chimes at Midnight to it. Um, and again, I... I uh, maybe we'll we'll talk about why that is because it's just me it is absolutely just me it's not a commentary on the film or anything like that but it's something that never really clicked with me personally in the way that my own personal favorite movies kind of do and then final question to take us into the spoiler zone uh before we discuss the film more depth niall if listeners have not seen uh citizen kane yet if they haven't had a chance to watch it should they pause the podcast maybe sit down maybe on saint stephen's day you know, maybe in the run-up to the new year, nice seasonal treat, put the feet up, turn the fire on, watch Citizen Kane. Would you recommend it? Oh, yeah. It's a sumptuous post-feast film. So have eaten your your dinner, sit down, relax, you know, put on the slippers, put up, put them up and just w watch somebody's life unfold before your eyes in two hours, you know? Yeah, no, I, I would I would agree with that myself as well. Um, it is a stunning film and it's really enjoyable. I watched, um, I think this is my first time revisiting it in more than a decade um, for this podcast. And I'm really glad that I did. 
And we are recording close enough to release date that I can say it felt suitably Christmassy. Because it does have that kind of, you know, I mean, we joked about the snow, but that idea of an entire life compressed down into two minutes, this idea of kind of like, it's a wonderful life, kind of reflecting on a life from almost literally the beginning through to the very end and trying to make sense of it, is something that I associate with kind of Christmas movies. So yes, I would wholeheartedly recommend it myself. Listeners, we appear to have lost Andrew for the moment, and I apologize for that, but I'm going to take us into the spoiler zone. So, Niall, what is Citizen Kane about for you? Uh, it's about the, the folly of man trying to create his own legacy in his own lifetime. Um, your legacy is built after you. You can't do it while you're still alive. But yeah, he was trying to. And uh, or Kane as much as Charles, as Charles Foster Kane, as much as William Randolph Hearst was a person who, because of his status and because of what he had and the personal wealth that he had and the ability to write his own narrative through his media empire, um, gave him a kind of self-confidence and a self-belief beyond what it was and so the, the, there was a huge amount of hubris there and as a result he was he was the architect of his own downfall and that that is what happens to anyone who tries to tell their own story it's not up to you to tell your story unless you're writing a biography and you're reflecting back but what, trying to write your own story as it's unfolding is no it's an it's an act of complete madness and also, like, fundamentally incomplete. I mean, one of the big recurring motifs is the idea that Xanadu, the big kind of estate that he's built on this man-made mountain, is incomplete. It's stuffed with all these statues and all these objects and all these boxes. Nothing has its proper place, and it's still under construction, I think, as he dies. So yeah, it's like, every, and again, this... It's all an artifice. Everything about it is fake. It's all part of what, of trying to craft the, the story. This This idea of a pleasure palace, this idea of somewhere that others will want to visit and he's an incredibly lonely individual so he's he wants to surround himself with others but he doesn't know how to connect with others therefore he builds what they he thinks they'll want he tries to project an image of what he thinks people want him to be and none of it is is real it's it's uh it's it's a very sad reflection of what happens if you to the superego yeah. It is worth noting, actually, because you did mention Hearst there, and we'll probably talk about Hearst in a moment. But when you mention Zandu, obviously, it's meant to be San Simeon, the gigantic Hearst estate. And one of the things that I find interesting about this is that apparently they screened Citizen Kane at Hearst Castle in 2012. And apparently one of the reasons they did it was to bury the hatchet between Hearst and between Wells, uh, symbolically at least, given that both of them are well dead at this point. But also in part because they wanted to demonstrate that San Simeon was not as tasteless and tacky um, as Xanadu is in the film, which I, I quite admire. Um, And actually, you mentioned there this idea of kind of building legacy and the idea of what you leave behind you and how you're remembered. One of the very interesting things about Citizen Kane is 
the story that everybody knows about it, which is that Hurst, um, William Randolph Hurst, was one of the bases uh, for the character of Kane. Now, obviously, as you point out, Wells is not a reliable narrator here, but he points out that people like, I think, Howard Hughes were also kind of influences on it as well. And throughout, you get kind of references, you know, veiled references to various other things. I think the, the, the key line from Hurst is you get a variant of you supply the pictures and I'll supply the war, when I think at one point Kane jokes, you supply the poetry and I'll supply the war. Um, to make the kind of comparison between the two. But Hearst apparently discovered, and I think the story of how he discovered this is interesting, Wells had been making the movie in relative uh, secret or relative seclusion. Um, He'd been, I think, basically recording screen tests and using those as kind of footage that he incorporated into the film. I think, if I remember correctly, and Niall can probably correct me on this if I'm wrong, but that wonderful shot of the newspaper reporters after watching the newsreel was one of the first things that he shot um, on his first day on set uh, because he wanted to just test and see how light works. So he figured that he would film that scene and he basically included that as part of his test footage. But he did a lot of this rather quietly. And it was only when Hedda Hopper, the, the famous gossip columnist, apparently discovered that Wells had based the character of Kane um, on the character, sorry, uh, the base character of Kane on Hearst that it kind of got out and got back. And I think actually it was the other uh, gossip columnist, Luella Parsons, um, who actually worked for Hearst, who uh, apparently um, Wells had kind of seduced and been charming. Apparently, according to Hopper, and Wells denies this, and again, this is one of those different narratives from different narrators, apparently Wells had said, oh, wait until Parsons discovers it's about her boss, which is apparently (laughs) what really set Hopper off. Uh, and apparently once Wells discovered that, sorry, once Hearst discovered that the movie was about him, he basically set an entire campaign against it. Reports that apparently other rival studios threatened to actually buy the film from Orkeo in order to destroy every copy. Reports that Hearst banned his papers from covering the films. Uh, reports that at the Academy Awards the following year, um, every time that Citizen Kane was mentioned, it was booed. And obviously, famously, it lost Best Picture to How Green Is My Valley, with some suggestion that Hearst had pulled the strings there. And two quick things to note about this. The first is the suggestion that I think um, that Hearst apparently was not necessarily offended by the portrayal of himself as Kane. He was apparently particularly offended by the portrayal of his mistress and partner, Marion Davies, um, in the film, in the character of Susan. And the second thing to note is the wonderful Streisand effect. Uh, And this is kind of the thing that I think to bring it back to what Niall mentioned there, which is the idea that you cannot control how you're remembered. How ironically in trying to destroy Citizen Kane and trying to bury it in trying to suppress it and to prevent its commentary on him, Hearst somehow managed to tie himself to the film in perpetuity in that it is almost impossible to talk about either Citizen Kane or William Randolph Hearst without mentioning that the two are interlinked with one another which i find fascinating and this wonderful kind of ironic punchline to to the movie i think which is which is nice because it's quixotic it's what and he's uh in mank he makes the 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 joke that the whole story about uh about when about hearse should be don quixote and and uh the idea of tilting at windmills that uh, trying to knock Sitson Kane down was his windmill. Yeah. 
And it, it's it's remarkable because it did apparently have some. It's been suggested that it did have some impact, like financially, on the film when it was released in terms of getting people to go see it, in terms of getting theaters to show it. Um, but it, it again, as we mentioned, it's remarkable that Kane managed to have this kind of reputation that it managed to immediately establish itself as something worth seeing. And it is again, maybe I don't know if this is the time to talk about it, but the legacy of Wells afterwards, because like Wells after this, you know, this is his first film. And and it becomes this story about a man trying to live his life and trying to control his narrative around that. And then you have Wells afterwards, like having produced what many people at the time recognized as the greatest movie of all time, struggling to do it again, struggling to make another movie, struggling to get another film made. I don't think he worked with any of the six major studios at any point in his career for any substantial length of time, if I remember correctly. No. No, because most of us after Magnificent Ambersons and uh, and what happened with uh, with RKO and uh, and and the rest, they he spent most of his time in Italy and in Spain. They were the only places that he could get funding for his uh, for his features. Yeah, which again is is kind of uh, very interesting in terms of that contrast that you have between Wells and and between Kane. But uh, very quickly in terms of kind of talking about its its craft and technique, actually, because you are. Some, hey, um, I believe that Andrew is, is back. Andrew, are you back? Okay, Andrew may not be back yet entirely. Um, but in terms of like it, its craft, as, as somebody who loves film, as somebody who works in film, as somebody who writes about film as a living, who operates uh, one of the premium kind of like Irish film websites, like in terms of its filmmaking and craft, what is it that jumps out to you about Citizen Kane? Like what is it that makes it a film that film lovers love? Uh, it's it's the cinematography primarily it's 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 where and how he uses the camera more so than anything else he's a man who at that time uh found better than most what is possible with uh with the video with a with a uh a movie camera um, I mean, a lot of them were using dollies. A lot of them were using tracks to do, to follow shots at that time. So, but so the cinema was really coming into its into its own in the late twenties or early thirties when with this what we now recognize as the language of cinema was really being established at that time. And and Wells with Citizen Kane is responsible for 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 cementing an awful lot of them uh, shots through down sweeping shots over down and through a glass ceiling or back in through doorways or um swinging a low camera down so that they he appears larger than life all the time which is what michael bay loves to do now uh, <laughs> it, it is uh these were things that were that were being done by him and it's 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 that it's it's how Citizen Kane influenced the language of cinema. It's how it it basically became the standard bearer for what you could and couldn't do, or not, well, not really couldn't, but what you could do with a camera in motion. Uh, because an awful lot of anything, any kind of pieces that would have been dramatic in the way the Citizen Kane was would have been static camera all the time, uh, very theatrical. And Citizen Kane isn't that. It does use static camera, but it also changes the angles or uses a crane or uses it low down. There's always something. It's it it became a thing of Kane of 
Orson Welles much later on, where he was in, it was impossible for him to shoot it at a straight angle. So you get Wellesian <laughs> angles. Um, <laughs> it's a bit like Tim Burton when he was telling the, how the design of Halloween Town should be in The Nightmare Before Christmas. He said no right angles, and so yeah, Welles was was very much the same. <laughs> It should be noted, actually, there that like when you mentioned those low angles and those low shots, like the sets were designed with that in mind, like they would actually have holes in the ground that you could put the camera in. I think there was one location they used where they actually dug a hole in actually to put the camera in the right position to get the low angle shot that they wanted to use for that, which is absolutely remarkable and again, kind of brilliant. And I think it's also worth noting the use of, say, deep focus as well and kind of depth of field in, in the film, which is one of the most remarkable things about it, because it does interesting things with with scale and with size so there are several points in the film where um and again to use that joke from jurassic park um another movie that i think we're all very fond of objects may be closer than they appear or further than they appear there are several sequences where objects will appear large or small in the background and wells will move into the shot and you'll get a sense that oh my god this space is so much bigger than it appears i'm thinking early on of the sequence where he's signing the deal with thatcher and with berenstein um and he just gets up from the table and he's signing away his kind of holdings and he walks over to the window and it looks like the window is just a regular size window in the background of the shot but all of a sudden he becomes so much smaller which again is a nice way of visually communicating what's happening in the scene or even shots like in Xanadu where the fireplace looks large and then he walks over to it and you realize it's a gaping maw that could swallow him whole. And again, it, it's all completely beautiful and completely remarkable. I mean, even things like the, that wonderful shot of the kids, you know, of him playing outside with the sled with Rosebud. And the fact that while his parents are talking about sending him away and what's going to happen with him, you can just still see him in focus in the background of the shot. It's all remarkable. It's, it's again, remarkable kind of storytelling and a great example of the use of cinematography to communicate what you're doing narratively or thematically as well. It's, it's an incredibly visually rich film, I think. Um, yeah, what can be done with, with practical effects as well? So it was one of the first films to show uh, ceilings. Because an awful lot of films didn't, uh, they wouldn't because boom mics were in the way. So he hung muslin cloths above the front, the, the set, so that he could film the whole way to the ceiling. I mean, this, this yeah. it's just brilliant. Yeah. Just simple, and also, so, but, yeah, simple but innovative. And again, like the positioning of the mics as well, which meant that actors would have freedom to move. Because again, you'll notice in a lot of the 30s films uh, in particular, when you're watching them, you mentioned like static shots are one of the things to watch for. Another thing to watch for is characters having conversations near like hanging lanterns, because those lanterns contain microphones, because it's the only way to disguise them on set, because you need the mics to be close to the people speaking. So like having the fake ceiling and having the mics up there meant that they could just have people walk around. And again, it's it's been noted that one of the things Wells does throughout his career, and we talk about the visual aspect of it the sound design on this and i was listening to it last night is absolutely amazing absolutely wonderful things like overlapping kind of lines from various characters or the way in which sound carries or the way in which sound is positioned in a shot which is very different from what i associate with a lot of the kind of era um i find it all just very very striking like the the opera sequence for example the opera hall sequence where the camera pans up um, away from the singing and you can hear the voice get more distant and more echoey or when they're in Xanadu and they're having these arguments and the the arguments between them there's a lot of reverb um, on there as well I think we lost Andrew again okay uh, but there's a lot of reverb on those kind of lines and those conversations which is not something you would imagine wanting on a conversation between two characters but it communicates so much and it feels so different from a lot of the films of the era it is 
remarkable in a kind of in a technical sense. It's striking. Yeah. Um, and that and that that's why it still it still stands. That's why it's still referenced and still gone back to, to and still a mine of of techniques. And uh, basically, it is a film school in one film. You know, especially from that from a cinematographer's or from a uh, from a sound designer's or sound technician's perspective. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. And I mean, we've talked a lot about the kind of production of it in terms of narrative structure, because um, again. One of the interesting things, and again, this ties back to, I think, what you mentioned the film being about, this idea of not being able to write your own legacy. The film, and again, this is something that we associate later on with films like, say, Kurosawa's Rashomon, for example, um, where you have this idea of unreliable narrators and different perspectives. And the way in which the film is structured is fascinating because it opens with a fake newsreel. And again, this is Wells being Wells, where you have this kind of um, this blurring line between what's real and what's fake and what, what's, you know, actually material and what doesn't actually exist. So you have like shots of, of him from uh, like 1920s, 1930s, 1940s newsreel, where he's hanging out with Adolf Hitler for example, um, in the shot. And you have like, you have this idea of kind of like the footage where they use a vocal in person. They didn't get the guy who actually did news on parade or news on the march because he demanded something like $20,000. So they hired an imitator to do his voice as well. Things like scratching the footage as well to make it appear older, removing frames so it looked like something from the 20s or the 30s in order to kind of get that verisimilitude. But in that opening sequence... Okay, well, actually, that isn't the opening sequence. The opening sequence is the one where Foster Kane dies, and that is a um, that is an amazing sequence of itself, which we should probably acknowledge because it. We mentioned the cinematography, we mentioned the sound, things like the editing and the fades and the juxtapositions. Um, like there's an absolutely beautiful fade in there where it goes from outside the bedroom, uh, looking in, and then with the window in the exact same position, it then fades inside to wells lying in bed okay listeners we may andrew may not be joining us again for the rest of this conversation i apologize for that but you have that kind of shot of them fading from outside the the bedroom into the bedroom and then the, again the, those angles where he's holding the snow globe and you have a fade in the snow globe to snow and then he drops it and then you have the reflection of the nurse coming into the room and it's the shot of her distorted on the glass in a way that makes it look weird. Again, all this stuff. And I think one of the observations that's been made about Citizen Kane. Um, and again, this is one that I think was intended as a criticism of it. Uh, but it's quite striking. Um, French historian Georges Sodoul uh, wrote in 1946, the film is an, ex- an encyclopedia of old techniques. And he pointed out that the film borrowed from um, Auguste and Louis Lumiere the special effects of Georges Millet, um, and even like shots of ceilings in Eric von Strongheim's Greed and newsreel montages in the films of uh, Digza Vertov. But as you pointed out, even the things that Wells didn't do first, he did, first of all, most successfully and most popularly and kind of rendered them part of the cinematic language. But he also did them in communion with other things and brought them all together in a way that is absolutely striking and absolutely kind of like brilliant and innovative and kind of makes something new of of the whole kind of of the whole art form, perhaps. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, but it's that thing about good artists, uh, you know, borrow great artists steal. And it's the there's no there's no shame in identifying what you think would work using it and it working 
<laughs> that's 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 exactly what you wanted it to do. So that's that is perfect. You know, and he, but he it, he also did new stuff. It wasn't that it's all yeah. borrowed. So yes, he borrowed, but he also enhanced. Yeah. And and again, in terms of enhancing that narrative structure, where the newsreel footage that we were talking that we were talking about there a moment ago tells you the entire fo- story of the film from beginning to end. You get a brief introduction at the start of the movie that tells you the entire life story of Charles Foster Kane, from his humble origins to his death, and it's all encapsulated in about five minutes of footage. Um, and it's everything that you need to know, which is remarkable because narratively speaking, logically you would assume that that would remove a lot of the dramatic tension or a lot of the audience investment in the film because it's like, well, you know everything that's going to happen over the course of the movie, which is kind of what makes it so bold narratively because, well, that allows Wells to say, no, this isn't actually about the life and times of, you know, uh, Charles Foster Kane. This isn't about the details of his life. This is about trying to find a deeper meaning in it. I find that kind of fascinating. That narrative structure is is even today is very rare to see in in a movie. I think it happens in Mission Impossible. That's about <laughs> it. In, during the credits, they show exactly what's going to happen in the film, and then it happens. But yeah, it's... that's that's a fair point. But you don't have a narrator explaining to you exactly what's going to happen as well. Um, no, but, but once I, you I, watch it back, or Bond movies did the same thing. If once you watch it yeah. back, you can see the foreshadowing in the in the credit sequence. Uh, yeah, but this isn't foreshadowing. This is very much like ABC, just so we're clear. We're going to introduce you to uh, to his two wives. We're going to tell you what happens to them. We're going to tell you what happens to him. We're going to tell you that he kind of like has a rise and a fall. Uh, yeah, like, and, and the fact uh, that it does this. Here's the thing, because this is a thing that you particularly love. Is this the very start of of spoilers is this the very start of <laughs> of of not just not spoilers but you know the way that some people absolutely love being spoiled that they have to find out yeah. everything that they can before they go and even watch the film is did what did it start with citizen kane the first five minutes told you everything you needed to know but you were in <laughs> you know? it's like it's like um, the, the most elongated trailer that shows you the final <laughs> shot you know yeah, it is. It, it's very much like that kind of modern trailer that does the entire movie in two and a half minutes. So you don't have to watch the movie anymore, but you want to. Um, and actually, that might be I think Andrew might be back. Are you back, Andrew? I am. I'm, I'm going out to my car. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to try um, uh, to to at least join the, the Zoom chat. But I am. I, I, um, I won't be. I'm. I'm not going to 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 bring my laptop as well. But um, I appear to, for some reason, have a signal out here in the December cold. Um, so if if um, yeah. So the, the this is what I'm I'm going to try to do. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, professional sorry, podcasting right here. No, not at all. We're sorry to drag you into the December gold for this. Apologies. No, no, um, no. I, was, um, <laughs> I, I, I actually, I was about to turn on the car in order to power my phone. But then I realized everyone's going to hear that. <laughs> it's like, um, well, I suppose, what other podcast do you get that? Do you, do you get you the get sound that real of a real visceral experience <laughs> in the yeah. background during it? It's very steampunk. I, I think it's a good idea because then you at least 
you can turn on the uh, the the heater the as heating. well. Yes, yes, the exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He didn't turn on the heating because he didn't want to affect the sound of the podcast. Yeah, so now he's Jack Torrance. He's just there. Suffering there for your eyes. A frozen holding a phone. Well, I mean, actually, that that's an interesting point because I think that gets at the, the really interesting thing about the film there that you mentioned, Niall, which is that, like, Citizen Kane is not about what happens. It's about why it happens. It's about understanding Charles Foster Kane. And we mentioned kind of Rashomon and this idea of different narratives because throughout, throughout the film, you have characters who have slightly different takes on who Charles Foster Kane is. So you have Thatcher, who is very much along the lines of, well, he was a good-for-nothing nobody. He was a communist. Um, and then you cut to the workers protesting, and they're like, no, he was a fascist. And then you have, you know, sort of his Berenstein, who is very much the yes-man throughout. He's like, he was the bestest man who ever lived, with the purest heart imaginable, and he just wanted to do good in the world. And then you have Leyland, and he's like, no, he was actually just a bastard who wanted to be loved. And I kind of love that you have this, the, the narrative weight in Citizen Kane is not about what happens, it's about why it happens, who it happens to, and what it says about Charles Foster Kane. Um, and I find that kind of like really interesting that even it's a movie you have to piece together. It's that, that metaphor of the jigsaw puzzle, which is, you know, perhaps a little heavy handed, uh, but it's it's very much kind of like what Wells is doing narratively. I find that fascinating. I mean, it's Sorry. not the only heavy handed. <laughs> and like, I love, I, 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 I loved it, but he's, he, he sent a, um, <laughs> a document setting out his principles <laughs> and he tears up his principles in case you don't get what this is subtly about yes and i mean we'll, we'll talk a bit about rosebud in a moment because I, I do think like this is probably something that for me holds it off my it's own amazing. andrew yeah. all right apologies about this nile all right, I'm going to go to Niall on this then. So Niall, in terms before, of like... Before you get to your next question, I'm just coming back to, uh, to to one of the things that you're talking about, about the about the narration and about the, the, the different ways that the story is told and the rest. If, 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 it, if it was a... Uh, if you were to ask the five people in your life who are closest to you to tell you the story about yourself or to tell you about your own life, none of them would tell the same story, you know, or tell it in the same way or whatever. So you, so you are, have, or hold you in the same esteem as any of the others do. It's, it, it's about interpersonal relationships and how we're, how we are seen by other people. Yeah. I mean, there's a really great line early on where, um, you know, where Thatcher comes to the office and he's like, why are you publishing this stuff? Why are you critiquing the, these things that are not in your interest to be critiquing? And like, Kane literally says, the trouble is you don't realize that you're talking to two people because he's basically the, the idea of like the trust fund baby and the newspaper editor and having to be these two different faces in these two different situations. And the idea that Kane is literally a multifaceted character because you see him from all these different angles while not getting a kind of a hold of who he is as a whole. And, you know, I think I think it's it's more than that as well, because it, it's it it comes into the. Um, the the theme of um, okay, we lost you again, Andrew. 
We'll never know what profound wisdom he had for us. <laughs> we'll never know what the theme was. I'm really I'm actually, which is very appropriate for a Citizen Kane podcast, actually, to be fair. Um, the truth in the telling. Like, there's always something kind of. Um, it seems. Andrew? My big worry is that Andrew's doing this on purpose. It's like an Orson Welles performance art thing. I think there's profound wisdom and we're only getting it through, <laughs> through the ether. You know, the, yeah, the, a little bit. Which is, like, we couldn't plan this. But again, it's, like... It's very Chris Nolan, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it, it becomes a metaphor for itself. But yeah, so like... Niall, do you think that there is like a singular Charles Foster Kane? Do you think that there's like a, a single way that he can be seen, or is he just this kind of fractal entity that's only seen through snippets by other other characters? I think I think that there's no nobody knows self other than self. So that that there's nobody knows the character or the, or the person um, other than themselves, and even sometimes themselves they hide you hide from your own self, and therefore nobody at that point knows you knows who the person is so charles foster kane spends so long building what how he wants to be seen that he doesn't that nobody knows him nobody really knows him and he doesn't know himself so it's a it's it's a it's a very sad tale in that respect and I think there's also something interesting in this idea that happens throughout as he grows. So he begins as this young person who is this young radical who wants to change the world. And he's very much, again, very much invested in the idea of social justice, much like kind of Wells was at the time. And much like Hearst was as a young man, uh, that being one of the influences, Hearst was quite a progressive young man. And then as he got older, he became much more conservative. He became much more the establishment that he'd initially seemed to be positioning himself railing against. I think it's fascinating that you have within Citizen Kane itself the idea that these two things can exist at once and maybe don't need to be reconciled. That they like that there's no point in his life where a, f a switch flips and he suddenly becomes this grumpy old man. It just kind of gradually happens. It ebbs and flows over time. I mean, in the newsreel, they literally say that he is, you know, a now a man out of time. The world that he built has changed. Um, and I kind of like that you don't get a clear explanation for that you don't get a clear moment when it happens exactly you just kind of accept it as something that happens to people over time you do have a breakfast nook montage where it kind of explains <laughs> his, his slow denouement it's like his breakfast is ruined too many times it changed the man <laughs> Well, I do, I do, I love that again. One of those wonderful little visual things—the montage with the whip pans, where it keeps going back to again life in miniature. And again, Niall mentioned like Mission Impossible. We've talked about Christopher Nolan. We talked about Bond movies. I feel like it's only natural that we go to something like The Commuter, the movie starring Liam Neeson, which also has a fantastic breakfast montage, which I like to imagine as the spiritual successor to the one in Citizen Kane, where instead of like showing you know an entire life, they just show short snippets out of order from a variety of breakfast scenes between these two characters to communicate the passage of time and i think so, yeah you're right it does. a fish it does. called wanda <laughs> yeah citizen <laughs> yeah, kane a fish called wanda the commuter there's your trajectory <laughs> <laughs> your clear cinematic arc there um what i think is actually and this kind of maybe gets to something where i uh, actually before we do that let's talk a little bit about the the central drive of the film though the reporter um, who played the reporter, Mr. Thompson, 
played by William Allen, which is a character who probably doesn't get a lot of attention because he's not actually a character. But I kind of like how he works in the film because he kind of gets at, and again, this is one of the things where Wells being a provocateur, Wells being a storyteller. The interesting thing about Citizen Kane, all that stuff that we mentioned about telling you the story beforehand changes the role of the audience in the movie where the audience is no longer necessarily like a passive observer watching the movie from beginning to end. They're instead, they know what the movie is from beginning to end. They become an active participant in it. And throughout, you have the character of Thompson, the reporter, who serves to ask all those questions on behalf of the audience. And in fact, the camera is frequently positioned over his shoulder or behind him. So he's driving our curiosity, which I find very interesting because it allows Wells to effectively make a movie where the audience is, again, within reason and within the confines of cinematic language, an active participant, because he's the one asking and articulating the questions from the audience. What is Rosebud? What does it all mean? But surely this means then. But what about you? Let's go back and ask this character again. Is What about that? What do we think of the character of Thompson? Is there anything there? Is he... I think we're back to how he defined the language of not just cinema, but also gaming. Now, this is a first-person shooter. Uh, it's Goldeneye. Or an RPG. Uh, yeah, you just yeah. woke over and press X. Um, ask yeah. Susan again. Um. So Metal Gear Solid owes everything to uh, soon-to-star Oscar Isaac. That's what he, They need to watch Citizen Kane before they begin writing the script for, for Metal Gear Solid. Uh, it's the yeah the the sled hides in a little box like like in uh, Metal Gear Solid. It's like what's this? It's just a box. Um. Yeah, little exclamation mark pops yeah. up over your head. Yeah, that, you yeah, know. Exactly. Yeah. Um, can we can we talk about the sled then? Because again, this is the kind of symbolism of Citizen Kane, and and this is the thing where I think for me, what holds Citizen Kane back while loving it as a movie, while thinking it's one of the most influential of all times. But for me, as a moviegoer, this is kind of the thing where I go, yeah, I'm not entirely on board with it. Where the central point of the movie is supposed to be that Kane is fundamentally unsolvable. That he is an enigma wrapped in a riddle, wrapped in a very snazzy scarf. Um, but at the same time, the film seems to kind of hedge its bets. So you have, like, repeatedly throughout the film, characters like Leyland, like Susan, hell, like Thatcher at one point as well, I think, literally stop Kane and say, you know what your problem is? Your problem is that you don't know how to love because you only give people things because you want to be loved in return. Um, which I feel like, again, again, this is something that is just personal to me, where it feels it feels like it over explains itself a bit much in that sense and and rosebud i think is perhaps the pinnacle of that where you have this driving mystery of the plot which is what does rosebud mean why did he say rosebud why was rosebud his last word and like you even have that again one of the hallmarks of kind of like code era hollywood movies and i know we famously we joke about um psycho doing it in 1960 but i think when we talked about uh, white heat white heat had a similar sequence as well where before the movie ends we're going to have a character helpfully sum up the theme of the movie that you've just watched and say ah maybe rosebud was something he wanted or something he lost maybe we'll never know what rosebud is maybe it's uh, then- maybe it's a sled represented as in innocence we'll never know yeah. we'll never know 
And I, like, part of me feels like I understand why it's there. And I understand that it allows the movie to have its cake and eat it by giving you this Freudian excuse. But I do find the like the telling the audience what Rosebud is with that closing shot is a little bit too much for me. It's a little bit too much like, hey, here's symbolism. Here's what it's about. Here's the key to unlocking Charles Foster Kane to a certain amount. All he wanted was his sled. Is that fair? Am I being I'm probably being unfair there, I think. Oh, I mean, you're not wrong, but you do have to remember the era in which it was made and how yeah. the, the knowledge of of Freud and of Freudian archetypes and the, and the rest was was in its infancy at this point because he was still alive and still writing. So you know it was, um, so to tell the audience, the audiences weren't as refined as they may be now or as aware of the the ideas of id and ego and the rest and the and the as aware of of, of psychological insight. Um, conditions or what, how some trauma can affect a person as 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 we n- now know, and because this was also pre World War Two, so the we had experienced or humans had experienced shell shock from World War One, but we but it wasn't understood to the, to that extent. So so over explaining something in the, in that way, like you're speaking to now to a child, but to them it was a it was to a less literate audience so no it's something i'm willing to forgive it in that respect oh yeah oh no like i'm not, I'm not complaining i'm very much saying like this is just for me this is like why for me it's not one of my favorites i'm not dismissing it as a film in any way shape or form it should be noted i think wells himself has come out and said and again keep in mind this is very much in the context of um, Wells's feud with uh, Mankiewicz, the one of the 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 Oscar-winning writer for his work on Citizen Kane. Wells has said the Rosebud gimmick is what I like least about the movie. It's a gimmick, really, and rather dollar book Freud. By the way, that was Mankiewicz's biggest contribution to the script, uh, which I kind of like. Stay classy, there, Orson. I really appreciate that. I think Kayla suggested that Mankiewicz might have actually owned a sled called Rosebud. Or he owned a bike that was stolen when he was a kid. Well, it didn't. And that is. Didn't Hearst um, have, have it as, as like a, an, an, a nickname for. Maybe you've already talked about this, but it's some, uh, like a pet name for Marion Davis. No, this, this is, that's an urban legend. Oh, is it? Or. It's a yeah. It's a pet name. Apparently, it was a pet name for her genitalia. It's a very specific. <laughs> Not just her in general. But, um, yeah. but yeah, it's it, it it's one of these apocryphal tales. It may or may not be true. There's no way to know. That's not the story I heard. <laughs> I'm kind of. I want to hear the story you heard, Andrew. No, it didn't include genitalia. <laughs> oh, okay really wow okay yeah no the rosebud was apparently no the name no for, it was yeah it, okay. it, yeah it was oblique <laughs> it didn't, uh, oh. <laughs> um, i like this the citizen kane podcast just got a lot saucier a lot quicker thank you because it, 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 it is it is a um i did yeah the, the, this is the 250 after dark Ro- Ro- rosebud's is a um a a word used by people to refer to some sort of um 
Actually, no, we're not going to do this. <laughs> no, no, no. Why are you doing this, Andrew? Okay. Why would okay. you do this? Don't look up Rose. <laughs> it's Christmas. Don't. On, don't the, do on a much nicer note, uh, Spielberg apparently owns the only surviving sled, the the, the Rosebud. Wow. Which yeah. feels oddly appropriate for Spielberg. Again, not to get dollar book Freud on it, but like, again, given the routine psychoanalysis that various people, I'm sad to say, probably including this podcast, have applied to Spielberg as a filmmaker, that seems very, very appropriate. Um, so yeah, so in terms of Citizen Kane, Andrew, what about yourself? Do you have anything that you want to add? Anything that you want to note about Citizen Kane that we haven't talked about already? Probably a lot that you've spoken about already. The, 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 I, I, I love the idea of the, that nobody can know the measure of a man, that it kind of serves as a almost kind of recursive kind of story about storytelling. It, it felt very, I don't know if you've talked about this already, but it felt very um, kind of topical, although like uh, increasingly less topical. But it, it, like okay, a media <laughs> magnet with political aspirations, who <laughs> yeah, but the, the who campaigns the, on like voter fraud. Yeah, um, yeah. Like I love, Where I did love, they I immediately love... like kind of change the headline from <laughs> from Ken wins from... to fraud at polls, um, and the, the, but but also the more sympathetic kind of um, reading of Trump, of him being this person who really, really... Never got love. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, the, like a kind of a sad, um, uh, uh, pathetic figure that, that, that desperately wants, um, um, kind of wants to be loved. Um, yeah, so it, it felt very... Like well, I was watching with Petrina, and she was saying, "I, I, I can't like this guy because he's reminding me of that fella." It's <laughs> <laughs> like I don't. It's okay. I don't. I don't know if you're meant to. <laughs> no, but we'll, um, we'll get back to another way in which he resembled Trump was during the making of it. Uh, was that he had such a ca- ma- mental caffeine addiction? He he was drinking thirty cups of coffee in the run up to to filming it, and he he started like getting tremors and uh, nearly had a heart attack, and so he uh, he switched to tea because he was like, oh well, tea takes longer to make, therefore I won't drink as much of it. But his assistant was making it for him, so he didn't. That wasn't working, <laughs> so he started drinking huge amounts of tea, and the tannin started changing the color of his skin, so he started becoming more and more yellowy orange. <laughs> Much like our beloved former American president. <laughs> Soon to be former, hopefully. Um, yes, and then we also, it's worth noting as well, we probably should talk about this. Citizen Kane is Donald Trump's favorite film. It is wow. worth acknowledging. Yeah, that worth acknowledging. Is, that is really, that is really um, uh, uh, revealing. And not in a kind of like, <laughs> it, it, um, not in a kind of like uh, uh, gang up on Trump sort of thing, but again, in in that sort of like um, for people who 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 don't like Trump but but kind of feel sorry for him, like you can see that's why it would why it would be his is his favorite movie. Absolutely, that's oh, crazy. Like- that's so hilarious. I thought it would be like a Gone with the Wind. Or, like, no, no, Berklination. Like, Come on. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, when I, Parasite won the best. I thought it was Oscar. Parasite. I, yeah. I am pretty sure that Donald Trump's real favorite movies is made by Brazzers. And, and, and 
not been released in cinemas anywhere. It's like they they star him. Um, they're on browsers and they star him. But no, I mean it. It is worth noting, like actually, just in terms of Trump's take on this, because we will include this in the show note. But Trump's take on this is as amazing as you might imagine that it is in context, which is for Trump. Kane is a story about how when you have wealth, people will try to take it from you. And the fact that they try to take it from you will alienate them from you. And you'll be left alone because you have to protect your fortune and stay above all these little people. And when Trump was asked, do you have one piece of advice that you would give Charles Foster Kane? Trump's response was, you need to find yourself a better woman. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I, th- I thought it, they, there, there is a very interesting line in it, and I actually think it's quite true. Is that the, the when um, when 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 Orson Welles is like, "There's no trick to make a lot of money if you, all you want to do is make a lot of money." <laughs> um, it 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 is kind of if you've met somebody who is just kind of one. I suppose it goes for for somebody who's 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 single-minded about anything, but you meet these people, and all they kind of want to do is um, is make lots of money, and it's kind of um, I mean it sounds glib, but I I think every every most people could do with a bit more money. You know, we're 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 very lucky in 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 this part of the world. But generally, the, the 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 things that really concern us aren't um, aren't money. They're kind of you know our our relationships and our families and things. But if 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 you if you kind of care not for those things, then then it's it, it becomes a kind of a simpler arithmetic, you know. And but the irony though is that you know in even in Kane itself, like he isn't primarily preoccupied with money. Like there's a wonderful conversation with Berenstein and and kind of Thatcher where they're like, um, you know, he didn't invest a penny of it. Um, he he just spent it. Um, but he spent it accumulating all this worthless stuff and also trying to get other people to love him as well, which is is very interesting. Um, and I mean it which, is probably worth talking. Sorry, go you for can it see that the Howard Hughes parallels there because Howard Hughes spent every last penny he had as well like it, it, he he was his he to the extent that he turned a blind eye to the one part of his empire that was making money you know and he, so that he could spend it on everything else <laughs> and yeah which which again is quite is quite striking and i think like actually in terms of we should probably talk very briefly about the politics of citizen kane because again like Wells, a very progressive um, like filmmaker, um, in 1941, this was made before, made and released before the United States entered the war. And you have him again bringing up this idea of like spoofing fascism or spoofing uh, non-interventionism, uh, where you have the idea of like Cain assuring people that, oh, no, 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 the, the people in Europe aren't going to go to war. They wouldn't destroy our entire way of life while he's hanging out with Adolf Hitler. But even the, the confrontation with Leyland um, after he loses the election, where Leyland is like, you know, you you want to help poor people, but you don't want them to unionize. You want them to exist on your charity, um, on your terms, because, you know, you don't want them to take or to believe that they're entitled to something. You want them to only have what you give them, which I find, again, very biting, very kind of searing commentary, particularly in the context of, you know, 1941 America, which was just coming out of kind of the, the Roosevelt years or in the middle of the Roosevelt years. And in terms of things like the New Deal coming out of the recession as well, uh, the depression as well, which is, is kind of fascinating. I think there's again, 
how much of the movie seems to be saying things that are were relevant then and are arguably as relevant now, I think, perhaps. Um, all right, then. Um, in terms of before we finish up, is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything that we haven't discussed already? Anything jumping out at people? Oh, the, the um, It's a really tiny thing, but it... it how many times do you think uh, a newsreel can say Xanadu? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it is incredible. Kind of, <laughs> that they hammered all. Well, just in case. Like, yeah, in case you forgot. Xanadu. It was like. Kublai Khan. Xanadu. Xanadu. Have you heard yeah, of it? Yeah. Well, this place. Yeah. Kublai Khan in Xanadu. Uh, <laughs> I did, but I did so, like the, it, the shot of the two monkeys because this version of San Simeon isn't Sans Simeon. Sorry, cut you off, Andrew. For me, I'm just going to go to Andrew. How many times can he say Zandu? Less times than Olivia Newton-John is the answer. But no, there's one of the great things about 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 Citizen Kane. In some ways, one of the one of the just completely mad things was that. So it starts with Manko with with Mankiewicz writing the script while he was bedridden from a car crash and he wasn't able to. So he was dictating it. So he was he wasn't able to walk. And then during the making of it, Orson Welles falls down a flight. Well, during the making of it, as one of the scenes goes down, falls down a a flight of stairs and chips his ankle and has to direct from a wheelchair for two weeks. So literally, it starts with somebody that can't walk around and during the making of it you have somebody who can't walk around this this is wonderful well again it's worth noting wells wells when he was making it apparently like when he was getting the old age makeup for charles foster kane and again like you can read about this stuff in the show notes there were big disagreements about among the makeup staff about whether or not these special makeup artists who worked on wells's face should be credited separately and the makeup director refused to share credit. So Wells just said, fine, nobody's getting any credit for any makeup on this. Um, but I will take out an ad and say, you know who you are. Great job doing my makeup. But apparently Wells had to wear contact lenses when he was playing the older um, Kane. And he couldn't see when he was wearing them. So that sequence where he tears apart uh, Susan's room in Xanadu. Um, he apparently like stumbled blindly through it like the Incredible Hulk. And apparently he was so committed, he cut his arm tearing the wood. Um, and apparently, both, obviously, that both was it. Yeah. Both hands, yeah. Um, yeah. Apparently done in one he, take because... He, it, it is an incredible... Like, is is it is it kind of an intentional sort of um, almost like kabuki sort of, <laughs> like not aiming for realism sort of makeup or is it intended as... And I don't mean that as... A, a, like, I, I was wondering, you know, was that a choice? Or is it just um, it was that one that's of the, the best they could do? That, it was one of the first times that latex was used for uh, for aging somebody, and it was a, it was one of the the uh, janitors who was responsible for it. He was um, he he messed about with latex prosthetics in his spare time, and he and Wells found out about it, and he got him involved in the makeup team, which is one of the things that led to the arguments amongst the makeup staff. Um, because this guy yeah. came in as a janitor and told him how to do the old age makeup. And to be fair, Wells's makeup does look a lot better than, say, Joseph Cotton's, for example, during his old age sequence, which is very much like the Saturday Night Live version of, well, we'll put a bandana on, pull his hair back and have him wear glasses and he'll be old. Right. That will work for that. 
um, which I kind of kind of do adore. Very quickly before we finish up, is it worth talking about the portrayal of Susan in the film and particularly Marion Davies? Because we we mentioned at the start that one of the reasons why Hurst apparently took this so personally is because he actually did love. Apparently Davies and Hurst did genuinely love one another. It was a wonderful love story. Um, and apparently Hurst took particular offense to the portrayal of Davies in the film or Susan in the film. And one of the interesting things about it is that according to Wells, they made a point of making Susan untalented, not to make a comment on Marion Davis as an actor, but in order to distinguish the fictional character of Susan from Davies. So as far as Wells was concerned, if you believe him as a narrator, they chose, they were trying to say, oh, no, 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 this can't possibly be Marion Davies. Look at how untalented she is. Um, as opposed to apparently what Hearst saw, which was, look at how untalented Marion Davies is. Which I find, again, if it's true, one of those, again, like Citizen Kane itself, fascinating. Does this make sense? Like, you know, how does this fit together? How can you interpret it? How a thing is is intended versus how it's perceived aspect of the film, I think. Well, there's also to how, how Mank approaches that particular same thing as well, where, and again, it's, we have no way of knowing if this this was the case, but Mankiewicz said that it was that she was deliberately written in such a way that it was uh, a pastiche. It was what other people thought that she was, rather than what she was. You know, so that it was written. So she's she's written as a character rather than as a a version of a real person. I don't. I don't think it's entirely an entirely unsympathetic. Um, portrayal um, of um, of Susan is it of Susan? No, I like that. Um, there are moments, kind of in in us, where 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 she's made to be this kind of um, sort of spoiled child, or to be to 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 be kind of did she. It's certainly implied that she's not very clever yeah. um, in, in, in the talented. movie, but there are moments. Oh, yeah. When it, it's, it's interesting watching it because it, it was kind of like um, if you were going to make somebody kind of a, an untalented singer now, I think, in a movie, you'd need to make them worse. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You need to do like like, they, uh, like Meryl Streep and Foster Florence Jenkins sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Like the the this woman can sing. You know. <laughs> the, the, I guess she can the, sing the, better than I can. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody can sing better than I can. But yes. Yes. You, you're actually quite a, quite a good singer, Darren. I I I I I I enjoyed a few moments when when. <laughs> You sing. I I much prefer hearing you sing to hearing myself sing. Uh, anyway, yeah, no, I I there I think there were moments in that portrayal that were somewhat sympathetic, where you do certainly kind of feel sorry for her, and where you do believe in their love as well, and where 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 you kind of want the best for them. So that it's not completely like tearing um, her down. I was going to say, I, th- I think the film is quite clear, though. Like one of the again, it's it's that like the film repeats it so often that you can't help but think that like 
everybody has a different version of the story, but they all believe that Cain is incapable of loving another human being because he wants to be loved himself. So I, I don't know. Like, do you, what about you now? Do you think that he loves her? Do you think, do you think that he's capable of loving Susan? Like, is there love between them? Do you think? Oh, no, I think that there is. Yeah. No, I don't think that he's incapable of loving another human because he wasn't loved himself. It's not, that's not what, that's not his form of trauma. His form of trauma isn't that he was, that wasn't loved. It was that he was pushed away. Is that he was that did, he obviously did be in the years prior to that, you know, bef- before his mother became wealthy, they um he there's there's no indication that there, he had anything but a, but a happy childhood. So it it it's it's the abandonment well, rather. Than, he 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 was there. He there was there's definitely a very strong suggestion that he yeah that he was beaten yeah no, no, abused yes. by his father. But the relationship with his mother, sorry, is is the one that I, uh, yeah, uh, it, it it's 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 that I think I think that the, the, to an extent there would have been he would have been protected or yes the, the he he had that his dad taken you know taken a whip to him but that he there would have been some protection against that from his mother and as soon as she was gone. As a as an influence on him, then he and he had to fend for himself, and that he uh, from such a young age. I, I think that's his. That's more so his trauma than the than the uh, than the not being loved. It's that the being abandoned, which is why he's afraid of being alone more so than anything else. Well, the, is there also kind of a um, like the a sort of uh, skepticism? in him about the very idea of sharing yourself you know and it, 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 like like i feel like a lot of citizen kane kind of for 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 better or for worse and mostly for worse is about him wanting to be himself and there's that there's that sign that we have kind of coming in and coming out um of xanadu of no trespassing a keep out that you, thing, yeah yeah that that's that that that. Well, you even have it with Susan saying that Susan saying like you never give me anything that I want. Like yeah. it's a sense that he's not capable of giving what other people need, rather than but, just giving what he thinks they need. But that right. there's something kind of inaccessible about himself, and 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 that that there 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 is maybe something more. There is maybe there is maybe a kernel of that that might be more sort of universal. Of their being, kind of 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 maybe wanting to 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 give oneself and not being able to, because they're 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 because ourselves are are because there is a kind of a core that that we can't invite other people to trespass into or that we can't give to other people. I guess I don't know. I guess then that's that's actually a nice segue then to to kind of like asking one final question before we finish up, and I think like in the spirit of citizen kane and in the spirit of the film structure niall what is your takeaway on on charles foster kane like is he is he a good man is he a bad man is he both of those things how do you see him when you come out of the movie like what's your takeaway from the little fragments that we see of charles foster kane as a human being Uh, he's a deeply flawed individual he's somebody who tried at one point to to use the his influence 
for the betterment of or for how he saw the betterment of society and society rejected him rightly so um and he was unable <laughs> to deal with that yeah. and so yeah it's it, it's not that he didn't know how because he he didn't have enough kind of steering influences on him to to make him a good man but there was part of him who wanted to be a good man he didn't know how to be and once he once he was unable to be a good man he became an utter bastard so, so. <laughs> And what about yourself, Andrew? What's your takeaway from from Charles Foster Kane? Um, it's it's an interesting one because it's not it's not really it's not really about how money can't make you happy because I don't think um, like on on unlike what Donald Trump kind of understood. I don't think. Cain was ever seeking things in order to make him happy. I, I, sorry, as in that he he he, he wasn't, wasn't trying to protect his fortune or keep rich. Like there's a moment where he says early on, like I'll keep losing money. Yeah, exactly. I'll keep losing money. I'll go broke in sixty years. It'll be fine. Yeah. So that, that him losing his fortune and being kind of um, there, there, there's this kind of outside idea of him losing influence and that being kind of his his tragedy but i i i i i'm not i'm not kind of certain about that i definitely think kind of coming 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 away from it the 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 point is that i for me anyway the point is that we don't know him and um and we 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 were were we're kind of told about him. It, it, like, it never feels like it's a story from his perspective. It's the impression of a life. Yeah, yeah. It's and and it it it, it, it seems very important that 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 you that you kind of have to not not only do do you kind of um, are you drawn to make up your own mind about him, but you're also encouraged not to trust your own sort of um, summation of him, I guess. Because if you if you did, then you you would have lost the point of of, of I guess what the movie is trying to say, maybe. Yeah. But that was just my impression there. No, that's that's fair. And I think, again, one of the things the movie does rather well is that idea of everybody has an agenda. Like, Baron's seen as a yes man, so he he omits all the stuff with, like, the fallout with Leyland, for example. And Leyland, on the other hand, tries to portray him as more complex, so he avoids a lot of the younger stuff where he was actually, like, proactively, positively engaged with these progressive causes in favour of the story of how he sold out. So, yeah, everybody has an angle on Kane. It's, it's almost everybody's story book Kane's. It's weird, though, because he, he he's... His cause, um, for the most part, at the very beginning, kind of in eighteen ninety eight, is is the is Spanish the end. War. Yeah, yeah. It's the it's 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 the end of the kind of splendid isolation and the start of American imperialism. <laughs> um, you know? and what a glorious cause that was because again the newsreel tells us that he he advocated for involvement in the first world war and then for isolation the second uh, which is like the two you know the two things that you get wrong so to speak but no no it is it, it is kind of fascinating in in that sense that you have this this kind of like 
again, I think myself and Niall talked about the idea that he changes over time and that maybe he doesn't even control the way in which he changes. But I think that about wraps it up then in terms of talking about the film, um, in terms of discussion. So what we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners, something that you are enjoying at the moment. It could be something related to the movie that we've just discussed. It could be something related to maybe the season, something Christmassy. But to give Niall a chance to think about that, I'm going to ask Andrew. So Andrew, what would you recommend for listeners? Um, well, I haven't, um, I haven't, I haven't yet watched all of Mank, so I suppose I can't, rec- <laughs> I can't recommend that as such because I haven't seen all of it, but I'm enjoying it so far. I, I love that watching like a mini series or like going the proper <laughs> Irishman route on this. Um. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not as long as the Irishman. I can recommend it in that sense, um, but. Um, no, in terms of things that I thought that I thought of when 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 watching the movie, um, this might be a kind of a basic thing to to recommend. But the song about Cain is 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 is, is adapted by um, the Simpsons by the White Stripes. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. No, there's there is an awful lot of Simpsons stuff in this. Um, like there's even kind of Homer in uh what what watching a streetcar named desire like um you know playing leland where yeah. where 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 he's messing with the um with the paper but no i i was i was i was going to talk a bit about uh, like a band that everybody knows about um the um uh the white stripes uh, which is kind of pointless because every knows that anyway. And if you have, and if you, and, and if you do, and it's a pointless recommendation, I suppose check out Jack White himself, and also um, <laughs> the likes of the raconteurs. This could be. This is. I'm. I'm very glad that it's not my worst recommendation. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I, I um, watching the movie. I, I, I thought something else would kind of pop into my mind and it didn't so but uh, do check out Mank as I will be uh, <laughs> at some point at some point um, yeah. if it's not like good the... don't blame me <laughs> um, <laughs> if it, the killing spree ending was a really sharp turn that nobody <laughs> yeah. saw coming I think yeah um, but it's like what there's a dragon in this and he talks it's, it's <laughs> when the seven nation army turn up that's the real <laughs> problem yeah <laughs> And Mank is like, that should be in the script. The moment, like, from Bohemian Rhapsody, where Mank is writing on a piece of paper and goes, that's really good, and then writes down very quickly, like, the idea for It's His Sled. But, Niall, what about yourself? What would the, you... The 47 cutscenes in one minute that happened within Citizen Kane that inspired <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody is... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, what about yourself there, Niall? What would you recommend for this? News? I recommend checking out Orson Welles' last film, The Other Side of the Wind, on... Uh, Netflix. Um, Netflix uh, put together essentially uh, posthumously Wells's last film uh, that was kind of unfinished, but was finished in some respects. But it finished after after he died. Um, so they went back to the Wells and uh, nice. <laughs> got, yes, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, and put it together and it premiered at, at Venice then two years ago. And it's, it's generally well received because it is uh, it's a very interesting kind of mockumentary, which which goes back to um, to the War of the Worlds and uh, film within a film thing. So it's it's a filmmaker telling a film within a film that, you know, and 
who was the master of the craft. It's uh, and it's got John Huston in it, so you know that's always and, a good start. <laughs> and what I most remember about watching the other side of the wind is that, like, watching it, the entire premise of the movie is that everybody in the movie has a camera and is filming everybody else in the in the movie. And it was like, this is a movie you could make today with just mobile phones. Um, like, it, it <laughs> seems less improbable now than it Un- did when Wells was making it in like 1973. Sorry, unless you had really bad internet. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is a fair. <laughs> my phone is about to die i think so I, I would not be able to make that movie i make cut out all right um and for myself um niall kind of beat me to it i was going to recommend a bunch of late horse and wells stuff um i've been diving into his stuff on the criterion channel um in particular um the 1966 version of the chimes at, Mil- at midnight uh, which i think i recommended earlier as a film that i kind of prefer personally to citizen kane because it is well playing falstaff and finding a lot of himself in falstaff this idea of a man who had this great potential um, and who maybe due to the way things worked out didn't always get to live up to it and this idea of kind of taking Shakespeare and mixing the plays together and constructing a narrative that runs through them and looks at Shakespeare from a different and unique perspective. It's brilliant. I wholeheartedly recommend it. And the other one is F for Fake, which is, I believe, the final completed film that he released during his lifetime, I think in 1973, which is, again, another one of those ahead of its time Orson Welles movies in that it is a documentary but it is a documentary that is also a film essay like something you'd find on YouTube, but is also a mockumentary in which it's revealed that most of what Wells has been telling you may or may not be true, which is in true Wellsian fashion. And it's delivered like the way in which it's constructed is very much like lovable movie uncle Um Orson Welles, where he films his talking head segments explaining what's happening, staring at the camera surrounded by like buckets of film reels uh, while he's sharing anecdotes that have nothing to do with what he's supposed to be talking about. But he's just a good storyteller. So just yeah. kind of go with it. Speaking of, I can't believe I didn't recommend this. I, um, I, um, I've, I've been drinking this great sparkling wine. It's it's called Parmesan, <laughs> and, and like the best French champagnes, it's vintage dated. Um, I, yeah. I, I I I know it gets brought up a lot, but it, it's, it's some of the best um, material. Uh, later, <laughs> later Orson <laughs> Welles. I, I love that. I love that Andrew's like the great Orson Welles cinematography is, you know, film, like career filmography. It's like Citizen Kane does, and then there's a long lull and then it's just Paul Masson. Like, does this do anything? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're on YouTube and they're absolutely worth watching. They are, also, they are incredible. Much- they're so, so much fun. Oh, another the, another thing that's on YouTube is the Dick Cavett kind of interview with, with Orson Welles. That's what oh, I want to recommend. Oh, where he talks about meeting Hitler. Uh, he talks yeah. About there, yeah. 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 Um, if if you can find it, uh, Mark Cousins' documentary on Arsenal as the eyes of Arson Wells is uh, is well yes worth from last year as well. I think is it two thousand nineteen. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. So, uh, oh, two, sorry, yeah. Well, he made it. Sorry, he made it in eighteen. He released it last year. Yeah. Um, and while we're shouting out Cousins, because we've given a couple as well, Women Make Film as well is, is also very worth uh, seeking out. That was released earlier this year, I think. Was that this year or was it last year? We this After a, this, this screening of uh, The Eyes of Arson Wells last year, um, it was this my second time seeing it, and I was down, Mark was down for it, and we were drinking in the bar afterwards, and he took out Arson Wells' shoe and handed it to me. <laughs> <laughs> 
kind of love that. We can't we can't beat that note to end on. So if <laughs> listeners are looking for a bit of Nile online and want to ask him about Orson Welles's shoe or sort of just engage about film, be it Irish or otherwise, where can we find you? Uh, I'm Niall X Murphy on Twitter, but I'm also then Skanon. The everything Skanon is it will get me. Perfect. Um, and for ourselves, you can find us on Stitcher and SoundCloud and iTunes. We're on Twitter at at the two fifty. Last week, we preempted uh, hopefully our coverage of Dune um, to talk about Black Christmas. So next week, we will be airing our Dune episode. It'll be our first episode of twenty twenty one. The wonderful Charlene Lydon and Joe Griffin are joining us for that discussion. We're really, really looking forward to it. The hot takes will flow. So take it easy, guys. <laughs> And we won't see you until next year. So thank you so much for joining us in 2020. Um, It has been a very long, very tough year for everybody involved. But thank you so much for listening to us. Take care and we'll see you on the other side. Bye, guys. And and happy now. New Year. <laughs> why, why are you doing an accent? Why, <laughs> we're out of Scorsese season. We ended Some, Scorsese somebody's season. Somebody's coming out to the car with a glass of wine. <laughs> um, <laughs> this year right. started very well. Um, All right. Take it easy, guys. Bye. Thanks so much, Darren. Sorry, guys. No, no, not at all. That was a disaster.